Hello and welcome to the Oasis Church podcast. Over the coming months, we as a church are going to be looking at the Apostles' Creed together, an ancient summary of the Christian faith that has traveled through thousands of years and functioned as an anchor of truth in a constantly shifting world. The Creed presents truth claims that can be explored, that provoke questions, that come directly from scripture and that are owned by a community. Thanks for joining us. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. John chapter 17 verses 1 to 3. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ the one you sent to earth. And Revelation chapter 21, verses one to four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain all these things are gone forever good morning everyone thank you Susie for reading to us really good to see you all my name's David um, and it's really good to be here this morning I'm just going to talk for about the next 20 minutes or so Um, that's a bit of an introduction to myself nearly 30 years ago now I, uh, I went to university to study biology with a view of what uh, I was then going to try and find out what I was going to do with my life. To this day, no one really knows why I chose biology, still. Um, But it seemed like a reasonable place to start. And one of the modules I took was all about the biology and genetics of ageing, the process of ageing. And this was a time 30 years ago where there were enormous sort of leaps and bounds being made in terms of the discovery around DNA and how our genetic code works. And the lecturer, who was an expert in the topic of ageing and the genetics of ageing, 
Uh, I think the, in the hope to kind of stir up a bit of enthusiasm with this bunch of 18-year-old um, biologists, uh, he said, there are people in this room who will never die, who will never know death. And his claim, quite a bold one, was that actually the rate of current discovery around genetics and ageing meant that he, he believed that in their lifetime, in our lifetime, scientists would discover basically ways to halt or reverse the process of cell ageing, and basically they'd discover the elixir of life, eternal life. And I think the Harry Potter books were just being written at the time, and I think he must have been reading them. Uh, <laughs> and do you know what? We, see, we thought this seemed really far-fetched. Actually, we just think, um, you know, really? People in this room who are not going to die? And actually, it turns out 30 years later, our youthful scepticism was probably well-placed, because although we're all definitely living a bit longer because of great medicine, uh, ageing has definitely not been cracked, and I think probably could be described as a little bit more complicated than that particular <laughs> biologist. Uh, and sadly, probably everyone who is in that room, including himself, probably will ultimately die a physical death, sadly. Um, for some reason, we're really intrigued, though, aren't we, by the idea of living forever. Do you know, actually, just looking at the internet, there are literally hundreds of very wealthy people who have chosen at this point to have their bodies frozen in the hope that one day science and technology and medicine would be able to bring them back to life uh, and they'll be able to, uh, to, to live forever, I guess. Um, sounds bizarre, doesn't it? But it's true. And the Bible talks about this uh, in Ecclesiastes, a book in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 3. It talks about how God has set eternity within the human heart. There's clearly something within us which has a hope and a longing for there to be more to life than what we just know now. And we've nearly come to the end of the Apostles' Creed. It's been a really fantastic series, hasn't it? Um, and that's that ancient statement that Susie's just read of belief, which sets out our core beliefs about God, who God is, uh, how he, and basically how he works in our lives. Uh, and last time we heard Mike talk about the resurrection body, the mystery of what happens to us after we die. Uh, and next week, Adrian's sermon's going to be incredibly short, because he only has to preach on one word, and that's the word Amen, which will be the end of the Apostles' Creed. He won't be sure. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, I have the pleasure today of talking about the everlasting life. The everlasting life. So the penultimate uh, part of the Apostles' Creed. Um, a really important first point to make, that the, the everlasting, or sorry, the life everlasting is actually not a great translation or interpretation of how the Bible speaks about this subject. A much better and commonly used term in the Bible is eternal life. That difference is actually really important because the life everlasting in our English translation of the, uh, of the, um, uh, the uh, Apostles' Creed um, it makes it sound like the main point about it is actually about us living forever, the quantity of life that there is to come. But actually that would miss out on the core of what the Bible is talking about, where eternal life is not about the quantity, but it's actually about the quality of life to come. A really important difference, because we don't improve life, do we, by just having more of it. It's the quality of life that's really uh, what matters so I'm going to look at the topic of eternal life and eternal life, um, and we're going to look at three aspects of the nature of eternal life and basically three areas then that we can take today to apply this truth in our lives. So three aspects and three 
points of application. The first point is that an eternal life is about experiencing and knowing Jesus. Because the term eternal life, it's used a lot throughout the book of John. And while John doesn't describe the term, it's always used in such a way that actually it is identical to Jesus. Jesus is eternal life. In 1 John 1 verse 2, it says, talking about Jesus, the life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, Jesus, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So eternal life actually isn't a a quantity of time or even a state of being, but rather it is the person of Jesus Christ. One of the great I am statements says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. For a minute, I just want us to reflect on the powerful eternal life of Jesus that's actually on display in creation. We're told in John 1 that through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Jesus made everything that we see. And then in Romans 1, uh, Paul says to us, for, the, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So here, Paul's encouraging us to ponder on creation, to better understand God's nature. So I mean, at this point, thinking about creation, there's so many things we could think about when we look at the beauty of creation. But the first thing I wanted to consider was the sun. The sun is, uh, the sun is consistent. So sorry, just find where I was. Yeah. So firstly, the sun has been made by Jesus' hands. It's been established and sustained by the hands of Jesus. And yet the sun provides energy and warmth to sustain all of life on earth for all of time. The sun's consistent in rising and setting exactly as we need it to. And even on a cloudy day, we've had plenty of sun recently, haven't we? But even on a cloudy day, the sun is working to bring life to earth. The sun speaks to us of the eternal life-giving creator, Jesus is so full of life-giving power that all he has made and all he sustains continues to overflow with life. Or you could consider the water cycle, because our bodies need water to live, don't they? And through Jesus' creative power, he's created a life-sustaining cycle of rain and rivers and clouds and sea, which has persisted over the whole time of creation, bringing nourishment and life to the earth and giving us water to sustain our bodies. Jesus is the universal source of life, the eternal source of life. And that invisible quality that we're encouraged by Paul to see in all of creation is right in front of our noses every time we walk out the door, every time we consider the work of his hands. So with that in mind, just within our minds, the scale and the vastness of the life which exists within Jesus, it's amazing then to consider one of the verses that Susie's just read out, Um, in John 17, where Jesus prays a prayer, basically describing the invitation that we have to join him and God the Father in taking part in this eternal life, where it says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you have sent. 
Eternal life is knowing and experiencing the eternal one, Jesus. When we get to know Jesus, we come alongside the very source of life and we experience eternal life by experiencing him. And that brings me to my second point. And eternal life is ultimately what we all need. It's what every person needs. To, feel, to be human can actually feel really vulnerable at times, can't it? Our experience as humans is one that can be vulnerable. Because actually we're trying to live in this place that we call the present. But often we find that the present is stolen from us either by troubles of our past or potentially concerns that we have about the future. We're living in between our past and actually when we think about our past, sometimes attached to that is regret, is bitterness, bitterness, is potential grief that we've experienced or our future, which actually, again, if we think about it, can be a real source of fear, of anxiety, or even horror for us. The good news is that Jesus actually meets us in our presence and provides for both our past and our future. How easy do you find it to be? Do you hear the phrase, like, you need to be present in the moment? How easy do you find it to be present in the moment? Right, confession time, I find it really hard to be present in the moment. I find it's a real challenge. There is a blessing and a curse in my life that I am really highly task-orientated. I am one of those people, I just like tasks. I like getting through things, okay? And um, that means sometimes I can be unhelpfully fixated, really, with what's coming next, rather than the joy of being present in the moment. And actually, the place this manifests itself most probably is in our home life. And uh, the bit that drives me nuts is the getting out of the door to try and get somewhere in time where you're corralling teenagers and other members of the family um, <laughs> to try and be at the next thing. And actually, for me, it's about being at the next thing. And it's unbelievable that I am often willing to sacrifice my own sense of well-being and those of the family around me in that moment, in that present moment, on to drive them to the next thing and actually jeopardise the joy of the next thing because we've all arrived arguing because Dad is driving you out of the door and why do you have to be so like this, Dad? Why, why are we so ill at ease being present in the moment? I can guarantee that even in this meeting, um, as you're listening to this talk or perhaps through the worship, for lots of us, we'll have been thinking either about something in our past that's dragging on us or potentially something about the future. And it could be something just small that doesn't matter. Might, you might be thinking about what you're having for lunch. That happens to me around this hour. Every day, I start thinking, oh, I wonder what I'm going to have for lunch. Or it could be stuff that's actually a lot more difficult and stuff that actually stops us being present in the moment, stops us being able to hear God's verse, uh, voice, stops us being able to receive maybe what he's talking to you about this morning. Do you know, this happens to me loads. How, much, how many times, and even recently, are you in conversations and then you realise, I, I just haven't heard the last part of what someone said because my mind has either been over here, something about the future, or it's been dragged back to something in the past. And then I have to apologize and say, I'm sorry, can you repeat yourself? Jesus wants to meet us in our vulnerability. Jesus provides for both our past and our future. As the, as the creed describes, Jesus came and suffered, died and was buried and was raised to life that he could break the curse and the cycle of sin that we find ourselves stuck between the sins of our past and the uncertainty of our future. He brings life into our very present. 
Jesus wants to meet us here and now. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel to us this morning in this moment. Do you know, to live this way is really tough. It's a, it's a real challenge for me. It takes real intentionality, doesn't it? And that's why in Oasis we have a phrase that we use, don't we? That we often talk around. And the first part of the phrase is that we encourage people to... Pause. <laughs> pause to be present. And then we encourage people to... Centre. To centre, to align our soul to the truth before we can then to carry that truth with us into the day, into the rest of the day. Adrian is just like so pleased right now. <laughs> so how are we doing that with that though on a daily basis? How are we doing? Pause, pausing, centering, continuing. Um, and those of you who are new around us, welcome. <laughs> You'll get used to it. And this brings me to my last point around the eternal life and that's that it starts now it doesn't start when we die it's for when we die as well but it begins now because we're conditioned aren't we to think about eternity as something that applies only to the future to a heavenly state after we die to a spiritual time to come forever but that's not what the bible is talking about because the bible talks about two kingdoms a kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of earth And what did Jesus teach us to pray? He taught us to pray for an invasion of a heavenly kingdom here on earth, for it to be pulled in to the earth now. He said, Lord, let your will be done. Let your kingdom come here as it is in heaven. Eternity is not just for the future, it's also for the now. And therefore eternity invades everything we do, everything we say, everything we experience, because it's in Jesus now that our lives are being sustained now that we believe in him. The last verse of one of the songs we've just sung uh, speaks so powerfully of that in Christ alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Hello? Um, No guilt in life, no fear in death. There it is, no guilt in life, our past is dealt with. No fear in death, we have certainty of a future. This is the power of Christ that now lives in me in the present. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus now commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. We live as those who in coming close to eternal life, then we reflect and display that eternal life in the way that we live. And now in thinking about how we apply it, so I want to come to three points of application. And in reality, I could now talk about anything that it is to be a Christian, couldn't I? Um, but I'm not going to do that because uh, I'm not going to be like Adrian's talk next week and just um, you know, talk on one word and go on forever. Um, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to finish it a good time. But all seriousness, uh, just three aspects of what it is to be a Christian Uh, in the light of living in an eternal life, what it is to be a little version of Christ as we seek to apply this in the coming weeks. Um, Firstly, I think we've got to say that actually living an eternal life is that we walk differently with death. And um, yeah, a, a difficult topic to think about, a difficult topic to face into, but one that clearly uh, is important. So we walk differently with death. And as Mike spoke about two weeks ago, 
Our relationship with death has now fundamentally changed with the hope that we have in Jesus. Mike spoke so well from 1 Corinthians 15, where it says to us that when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that's written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Eternal life swallows up death. And even though, yes, we'll experience a physical death, we now walk through it with a very different hope. It's a good hope because you don't have to be cryogenically frozen. There you go. We've all saved ourselves some money. (laughs) Irenaeus, a second century bishop, described it like this. He described eternal life as a kind of blessed forgetfulness. One day, he says, all believers will share so fully in the life of God, they will forget to die. We see this in the short story and scripture in Genesis about Enoch, which says in Genesis 5 that Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. Can you imagine a life lived so totally and fully immersed with eternity that one day he simply slipped from one world into the next? He was no more, because he just became completely one with God. He disappeared. I've been listening to some things. A number of you, I'm sure, will be aware that Tim Keller, um, who's a pastor, preacher, theologian, writer, American, uh, who's had a a huge impact um, on, on, I guess, Christianity over our time. He actually died last month. And uh, just listening to some of the podcasts and things that have been said about Tim Keller and would encourage you to, to have a listen he is a man who walked very different, a very different uh, journey with his journey uh, t- towards him dying. Uh, he died of pancreatic cancer and um, not a nice way to die. But the way he walked was totally different. Um, there, was a, there was a sermon that was replayed um, just with a small story about when actually, he, this isn't his first episode of cancer, he actually had thyroid cancer when he was a younger man. And... Um, and just described an experience where he was actually on a hospital bed about to be wheeled down to be operated on and in a, a real place of anguish around what was about to happen, the uncertainty of his health, the impact on his family and his slightly younger kids at that point, his wife, his ministry, praying, Lord, please help me, help me have faith. And then at that point, he just he felt the Holy Spirit come and actually just felt this overwhelming sense of light around him. And then within this light, he actually saw a small black dot. And he knew that that black dot basically equated to all the suffering, difficulty, challenge of this world. But in the context of eternity, he suddenly knew that it was okay, that the place he was in was okay. It's all right, God's with me. And actually, in the context of eternity, this suffering will seem like momentary suffering, something momentary in passing. And he knew, not that he didn't necessarily know that he was going to get through it all, but he knew it was going to be okay. His family would be okay. His wife would be okay. The ministry would be okay. God's, God's here. God's in it. He said he would have loved to be able to carry that sense of well-being, that absolute certainty, all the way through his life. And he, and he said, in reality, he couldn't do that. He wanted to go back to that moment but actually the truth of that moment was something then he lived in and certainly he carried in to, um, to the stuff uh, that he's now just been through. 
And you notice, this isn't to take away from the pain or difficulty of grief. Because another thing to remember, the eternal life was a grieving life, was a life that was fully accustomed to suffering. If you look at Jesus outside the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, who he lost. I mean, what a mysterious picture where you have the source of eternal life, fully able and knowledgeable to know that he could raise Lazarus, but probably at that point didn't know, was actually fully also embracing human vulnerability. And the shortest verse in the Bible there that Jesus wept. Jesus wept in front of the tomb of Lazarus. So it's not about denying grief or the difficulty of that, but it's also actually being able to walk with death very differently. Just part of my own story, which is a bit difficult to hear, but um, is important because it's really shaped my thoughts and experience, I guess, around death, was that when I was uh, just aged 22, I lost my mum from a chronic illness. And, uh, and although she was very ill, Actually, she wasn't meant to die at that point. Her death was very sudden. Uh, and what that meant for me, actually, was that on the day of her death, I arrived at the hospital, not having known that she died a number of hours earlier. And uh, when I was told, I just went into shock, actually. And I said, I've just got to see her. I just don't believe it. I've got to go and see her. So actually, I went into the room where her body lay. And uh, I just went in there on my own. And uh, just two things that hit me. Firstly was, she's not here anymore. She's not here anymore. And the second thing was, but there is someone who's here. It was just the Holy Spirit. It was just with me. Completely with me. And actually, in that same sense of what Tim Keller experienced, I just knew it was, was, this was okay. Not that God had ordained the suffering or what had gone on, but that God was with my mum and now was with me. Uh, in walking through that. And again, that's not to, um, to kind of remove the difficulty or the horror or the shock of that for me and my siblings. You know, grief then was very much a two-year process for me of walking through the reality of what then had occurred and the, that, the change that there was in our life as a result of that. Um, but, you know, it wasn't carried then with despair. It was carried with a, with a hope that God was in this and God was with me within it. And actually, you know, going back to that, that uh, part in, uh, of thinking about Enoch, that I could say the same for my mum, that, you know, Betty Gooding, she walked faithfully with God and then God took her. She was no more because God had taken her away. And, you know, on her gravestone, we decided to have inscribed something that I think was really fitting for her and fitting for what we felt. Uh, and that was Paul's words in the book of Philippians, where it says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And yeah, for a woman who had a difficult life, actually, both in terms of her health and in terms of her relationships, but actually a life of faithfulness to Jesus, but then a life also of glory and gain in being able to go home and be with him. The poet George Herbert said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. Yeah. Death has now lost its thing. Death has been swallowed up in victory. We get to walk very differently with death. Amen.
That's me just starting your sermon next week, Adrian. <laughs> My second point um, is that we now get to use a different currency. Um, if we go and visit a different country, um, you've got to get the currency of that country, haven't you? You go to America, you've got to get dollars. If you go to Europe, you've got to get the euro. And um, the Bible's really clear that actually the currency of heaven, of eternity, the kingdom of now which we're part of, uh, the currency is really different to that of the currency on earth. And when I'm thinking about currency, I'm thinking about the things we value and how we interact and trade value, I guess, with one another. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the currency of heaven actually is all about the actions and attitudes of our hearts. A good example of this, again in the Old Testament, is where Samuel was looking for the next king, and you know, Samuel was, was tempted, like we all are, to look at the outward things when he was looking for the next king. Someone tall, someone powerful looking, someone impressive. But God spoke to him and said uh, in Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord looks at the things, uh, the Lord does not, sorry, look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And an eternal life is one where it's all about the motivations of our heart. And you know, that's incredibly feeling, sorry, incredibly feeling, freeing. Um, an eternal life, as we'll see in the life of Jesus, as we see in the life of Jesus, is not driven by any sense of convention or a need to fit in. In fact, an eternal life will actually be characterized by the richness, diversity, and freedom which comes from not having to fit into worldly systems of value. I'm just gonna say that again. An eternal life will be characterized by the richness, diversity, and freedom which comes from not having to fit into worldly systems of value. For the slightly younger ones here, um, I just heard a, uh, about a recent study, but basically, um, that had been undertaken with groups of young people from around the world. And it was saying that the result, basically, of the impact of social media was that young people, now for the first time in the whole of history, are more likely to have characteristics and attitudes that are aligned to other young people globally, much more than they are than their own local cultural expressions. And such is the pressure of social media, of those platforms, to, to conform that almost there's a sense that it's creating a bit of a homogenous soup of sameness, basically, rather than the rich diversity that God intends. And I don't, I don't want to be negative towards social media. Social media is, has a real power to potentially connect us, but also it is definitely looking to define us. And I want to encourage that you, that the richest life, your truest self, your real identity is found in Jesus and not through a system of likes and substitute value that so many things around us promise, but fall just so very short. And you know, social media obviously is just one thing. Do you know, in every stage of life, there's something where we potentially get pitched in a race that God has not called us to, be it in the status that we hold amongst our friends or something in our family or our work status or 
uh, in the house that we buy or the car that we drive. An eternal life is one where we can actually unattach from the negative value systems around us and live the unique life he's called to. So hear this this morning, as, as we consider the eternal life, your life doesn't have to, and in many cases, as you follow the call of heaven, it will not look conventional. It won't align with convention. It's incredibly freeing, because we're answering to a value system in the culture of an eternal reality and not the pressures of this world. Yeah? And lastly, my, my last point of application, I was, uh, I was in the center of Birmingham, last week and I was just struck again. You just walk around the city centre just by the incredible and rich diversity in our city. And I was thinking, wow, in many ways, we actually live in an eternal city. Because you know, Revelation that Susie read from, it talks about the fact that actually in the heavenly city, God's gonna draw people from every tribe and every tongue, a cross-cultural, multi-ethnic experience is gonna be a key characteristic of our future home, and actually should be a key characteristic of the way we live now. But it can be a real struggle, can't it, to have the courage to cross from the comfort of our own culture and be immersed and experience the discomfort and the sense of risk uh, that we feel when we engage with those from other people of uh, parts, other, you know, from other parts of the world that are very different to our own. There can be a real awkwardness in conversation there can be a, the potential for cultural misunderstanding, the fear that we might struggle to connect. But when we do take that risk, I believe we experience something of the eternal life. We can experience Jesus in some of those relationships. Really important. When Neris and I first got married, we had the privilege of taking some time out and going traveling. Um, and as part of that, we actually visited friends who were working as missionaries in Latin America. And to be honest, we found that process and some of the things we experienced um, incredibly challenging, um, with also some real points of reward within it as well. Um, but we were like, I mean, we would not be good missionaries. This was just you know, evidence of the facts. Because there were numerous stories of us getting stuff wrong, ending up in the wrong place, getting the wrong bus, getting lost, misunderstanding things that were going on around us, uh, ending up in misunderstandings with people uh, and, and you know, committing a lot of cultural faux pas. It was pretty humbling at times. But you know, there were also really magical times. There was a point at which we went into, um, we went on a visit with them to a Costa Rican prison. Uh, and prisons in Latin America are notoriously difficult, poor, challenging places and not places you'd want to be. Um, and as we were going in and the gates closed behind us, just the sense of intimidation. There were men wolf whistling at the women who were with us uh, and we're just feeling very intimidated. Um, but then we arrived in a small room in the middle of the prison with just 10, 10 or so Christian inmates, none of whom spoke English. But from the outset, you could see that they reflected the image and the peace of Jesus. We worshiped and we studied the Bible, and there in that most unlikely place, we experienced the eternal life. That joy we get when we reach across a cultural and social barrier, and then we realize that actually we're just all one in Christ, that we are one in Christ. And you know, as I've said, you don't need to go to Latin America to experience this, it's on our doorstep. Do you know, it's increasingly part of who we are 
in Oasis, a richly culturally diverse group of people. And you know, our challenge this morning is to take risks in those relationships, relationships in, in our body and uh, in the church that we have here, to build a body that's reflective of the bride of Christ, that will represent every tribe and tongue, um, and uh, that will greet him one day as he comes to, uh, to receive us. And that is where I'm going to end. I think um, it'd be great, Rod, if you were to come up and just play and we could uh, just have a time of prayer.
group of people I want to just pray and give the opportunity to respond to this morning. And that's just where you're feeling at the moment that, um, that actually you are engaged in a, a value system or something that is pulling on you that actually you know is wrong. That almost you're in a, in a race with something or you're competing with others in such a way it's actually stopping you enjoying the life of Jesus. And you know, it's so easy to, to move on from that because he's here and he's here to empower you. He just wants to give you that perspective. Actually, your life can be completely different. You don't have to conform. And where people are putting an expectation on you, literally now you can choose to break it off. Live an eternal life. A race that doesn't end with a nice house, a nice family, a nice whatever our culture or society says that it's meant to end with. But you know, it's a race that ends greeting him, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Have your sights set on him. Have your sights set on the prize. And you know, it's really easy to give that stuff up now. It's just a case of confessing it to him, asking for forgiveness, choosing to turn a different way. And that might mean some different actions. It might mean a different choice in who you're hanging out with or the apps on your phone or the jobs that you're applying for. I don't know what it is, but God knows. So Jesus, together, we just say, we want to set our eyes on the prize, Jesus, which is you. And we ask for forgiveness for all the things, Lord Jesus, that our heart is tempted to go after. We just want to turn from that thing that you might have put your hand and your finger on today, Lord Jesus. And we want to run after you, Lord Jesus. So we give that to you. We say sorry. And Lord, would you come now and empower us, Lord Jesus, to live in the power of eternity, in the power of your spirit. Yeah, we just want to live for you now, Jesus. More of you.